compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. I love that last song that we just sang, and it comes from Psalm 24. I just want to read Psalm 24 to you um, before we get started in our text for this morning. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the, on the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And it goes on, uh, continues to talk about similar things. And, and it, it's incredible. It's just God's hand at work that we sang that song because that song is um, a lot about what we're going to talk about this morning. But before we jump in this morning, let's pause one more time and ask for God's blessing upon uh, the hearing of his word. So please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the word that you have given us. God, it is a a privilege, and yet it's a great responsibility to hold the very words of God in our hands. And so we pray that you would be with us as we open it, that as we study it, you would be uh, speaking to us, and that you would be pleased in all that we do. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Again, good morning. Welcome to Crosswinds Church. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jordan, one of the campus pastors here. And Crosswinds Church is actually a multi-campus church. We have a location here in Spencer, also another location in Spirit Lake. And, and some of you may be wondering what exactly that means, but uh, it basically means we're one church that meets in multiple locations. And one of the benefits of that is that we can partner together and go further together than we ever would be able to go uh, than we, if we were just a, a church plant on our own. Every single week, Pastor Kurt, who is our senior pastor and does his preaching in Spirit Lake, the two of us actually have the chance to sit down and talk about our text that we're going to be going through. So if you ever are in the Lakes area and want to go to our Crosswind Spirit Lake campus, and I encourage you to do that, you'll find uh, they are going through the exact same text every single Sunday that we go through here. And one of the nice things about Kurt and I getting the chance to dialogue and talk about these things is that uh, he can cover my shortcomings and I can uh, sometimes help him understand texts and passages uh, in ways that that are a new eye, a fresh set of eyes on the passage. And so it's a wonderful way for us to journey together and for us to grow together. And uh, I just love the way that this church works. And uh, again, if you haven't been to our Spirit Lake campus, I invite you to uh, attend there. They have services. They have two services every single Sunday morning. So uh, encourage you to check that out as well. Now, right now, both of our campuses, both here in Spencer and in Spirit Lake, are going through the book of First Peter. And we've been on this journey for about a month now as we've been working our way through this book. And we saw that this is a letter that was written to people who were in the hard times of life. They were written, it was written to some people who were suffering, going through hardships, and they were going through trials and, and all of these different things. And Peter, after he sees all of these things that people are going through, tells them, to place their faith in Jesus, to have hope that Jesus will be with them and that will help them in the midst of all of these things. 
Many of us can probably relate to the situations that the people that Peter was originally writing to found themselves in. Truth is, some of us are probably just on our way out of one of the darkest times of our lives. And some of us are in the midst of the dark times right now. Some of us can see the storms on the horizon and know they're coming. But wherever we are, whether our season is, you know, beautiful and sunny and God has been extremely good to us, or if we're in the midst of the darkest time of our life, this letter has a lot to say to us and is incredibly powerful, powerful for us. Last week we were in the end of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 22 through the end of the chapter, and then we jumped into the first few verses of chapter 2. And as we saw in that passage, it's really talking about how Christians are called to love one another. Christians are called to love one another. It's not really that shocking, is it? After all, we all know that Christians are called to love others. It's just part of the way that things work as Christians. But if we're honest with ourselves, we also recognize that it's really hard to love other people. It's really hard to bear with people who are uh, sometimes annoying to us, and we're annoying to them right back. It can be really hard to love people, especially in the difficult, hard times of our lives. That's why we need the right motivation to love others. That's what Peter says at the beginning of chapter 2. He tells us that we have to have the right reasons for loving others. We have to have the right place from where we love other people. And he tells us that the way we do that is to have a passion for God, to have a love for God, and to encounter him in his word. This is the foundation that we build everything upon as Christians. And if we don't build upon that foundation, we're going to find ourselves frustrated. We're going to find ourselves burnt out when we try to love others. And frankly, some of us might not even be able to fully love others without the foundation of a passion for God. And this morning, as we jump into the next following passage, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And what we're going to see in this is Peter continues his discussion. He continues talking about the Christian community and about the church and how God calls us to love one another in the midst of this Christian community. He tells us this by first asking the question, what is the church? See, our society has a really interesting understanding of what the church is. Some people think that the church is just the building that we gather uh, in. Well, that doesn't really work for us because we gather in a school, so we don't have a church if it's a church is a building. Some people think that it is just a social action club that people get together. So what exactly is a church? Well, that's one of the questions that Peter answers in this passage by telling us not only what the church is, but he tells us about the purpose of the church and what God is doing in the church. And this is true in the good times of life and it's true in the bad times of life. No matter what, God is doing these things and has this purpose for his church. As we work through these verses, as we work through verses 4 through 10, we're going to see one key thing that Peter is trying to tell us. And it's this, that clinging to God in our hardships never leads to shame. Clinging to God in our hardships never leads to shame. See, we as Christians, we confess and believe that we worship a very big God. If you were here with us uh, several weeks ago, we saw that in one of the passages that we were working through. And as we worship a very big God, we know that we can trust him in the midst of the dark times of life. That he is big enough to still be in control, even when we don't know what's going on. And because God is big enough and in charge We know that it'll never lead to shame if we trust in him. But if we look at our lives, 
we look at the lives of those who are around us, we wonder whether this passage is wrong. We wonder if it's wrong saying that those who trust in God will never be put to shame. After all, we look at our culture, and we live in a culture that is increasingly uh, bigoted towards Christians, who intolerant towards our beliefs, calling us uh, bigoted, intolerant ourselves, uh, the responsible ones for the world's ills. And amidst of all of this, we wonder if it is worth it still trusting God in the midst of the difficulties of life. If it is worth it, in the midst of the storms that we are experiencing, when we have no idea what is going on and why it's happening to us, is it worth it to continue worshiping God? And that's one of the questions that Peter answers this morning as well. As we continue working our way through these verses, we're going to see that Peter gives us three reasons why we can cling to God in the midst of hard times. There are three reasons why we can cling to God in the midst of hard times. We're going to look at each of those individually. Uh, as I said, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to that passage. If you don't, the passage is going to be printed in your sermon notes. It's also going to be printed on the screen behind me. Uh, so please follow along as I read aloud 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. First thing that we see, the first reason that we have in this, uh, in this passage for clinging to God in the midst of hard times is this. It's because God himself suffered. He himself suffered when he was here on this earth. See, Peter begins by telling us in this passage about what God is doing in the church and how he's at work in the church. And he tells us, when he calls us living stones, he says he's building us together. He's at work on a, on a work project, making things uh, that were not become something that is now here. See, the last few weeks we talked about holiness. And as we're going through holiness and, and how we're called to love God and how we're called to love others, everything we've talked about was really focused on the individual level. Everything was focused primarily on how I can focus on my relationship with God, on how I can love those who are around me, and how I can continue to grow in my relationship. But now Peter changes his approach. Instead of focusing on the individual relationship, now he looks at what God is doing in the church as a whole and how he is at work making us into a spiritual building. One pastor from the early 1900s uses an analogy. I think this is a great analogy. He said God is a lot like a piano tuner. He's like a piano tuner because a piano tuner tunes each key individually. He's at work making sure that key is lined up the way it is supposed to be. But it's not tuned just for the sake of that one key. It's tuned for a greater purpose. It's tuned to play in the great uh, piano pieces and the great symphonies if, if there's other orchestra pieces around. And that's what God is doing with us. When he's at work in our lives, bringing us into alignment with his word, when he's at work making us holy, he's doing this just like a piano tuner with a greater purpose in mind to make us more like him. See, as we grow in our own faith, the church itself will grow. As we continue to get closer to God, God is at work making the church into a spiritual building, as we see here. If you notice, I mentioned that Peter uses this imagery of living stones being built up together into a spiritual house. What he's talking about here when he says this is we're literally just becoming a temple 
for God, a place where God is worshipped and a place where God dwells. In the Old Testament, all the way from the time of King Solomon up until about 50 years after Jesus' resurrection, the temple was the most important part of Jewish religion. It was the place where God himself lived on this earth. This is why all of the prayers were offered towards Jerusalem. This is why sacrifices were made at Jerusalem. Worship was offered there because God himself lived in the temple in a very real way. You see what Peter is doing here. Peter is saying that the temple no longer matters for us. The temple no longer matters for us because we are the temple. We are the place where God himself dwells. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is at work in our church here at Crosswinds, both in Spirit Lake and in Spencer. He is at work making us into a place where he himself lives, a place where he himself dwells. Just think about how encouraging this would have been for the original readers of Peter's letter. They had grown up understanding that the, or that the place where God lived was thousands of miles away in Jerusalem. And now they're being told that God doesn't live thousands of miles away in a foreign land. God now lives with us in this body. And this is really good news for us this morning too, because God lives here among us because we are being built into a spiritual house, into a place where God himself lives. You know, it really kind of bothers me when people talk about going to Israel and they say that they encounter God in a very special way when they go to Israel and how their faith is just uh, now makes sense finally because they encountered God when they were in Israel. It even bothers me when people talk about it like a pilgrimage. They said, this is a, an important part of my faith journey to go where God once walked. And there's nothing wrong about going to Israel. There's nothing wrong about coming uh, back from a trip to Israel with, uh, you know, a passion for your faith and, and having your eyes open and that kind of thing. But when we say that it's a pilgrimage, and when we say that God himself lives in a special way over in Israel, we're wrong. Because God lives in the same way here as he did once in the temple in Jerusalem. If you want to go on a pilgrimage to find where God lives, go to the church. Because God himself lives in the church. God himself is building us up into a spiritual temple. Peter tells us the purpose of this in the next few verses. He tells us why God is building us into a temple. To offer up worship to him. To spend time praising God for all that he has done. You see, in the Old Testament, there was a special order of priests that God had instituted. And these were people set apart from birth. And their entire purpose in life was to offer worship to God. To offer the sacrifices and to approach God on behalf of the people. What Peter does here is he says that we are all priests. All of us are now part of offering up this spiritual worship to God. Every, part, every one of us is a part of this holy priesthood of God. I love the first phrase at the beginning of verse 4 here. It says, as you come to him. 
See, this, isn't, this is something that never would have been possible in the Old Testament way of doing things. Never would have been possible for everyone to come to God because it was only the priests who were allowed to come before God. And they had to come in a special way and they could only come in certain times of the year. And yet Peter says, as you come to him, as you approach God, do these things. It's incredible good news. So what are these spiritual sacrifices that Peter calls us to make? Well, spiritual sacrifices really encompass all of life and how we worship God with our entire being. It it counts on Sunday morning as we worship God through song, but we also worship God through hearing his word, through giving of our time and our money, and through serving on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. It's not just Sunday mornings, though, when we worship God. We worship God throughout the rest of the week when we are working in our jobs and when we are working not in our jobs, when we uh, share the gospel with those who are around us. But it's more than just sharing the gospel when we worship God in in our places of employment. We worship God when we do our best. We worship God when we try hard in our jobs. God is glorified in those times. We worship God with our family. This doesn't just mean doing family devotions, although that's part of it. It means being all there for your kids, reflecting and modeling Christ to your children. We worship God in every facet of our lives. So you may be wondering, what on earth does this have to do with suffering? After all, Jordan, you said this is uh, the main point of this passage is clinging to God and the hardships will never lead to shame. So what does this have to do with suffering and hardships? Well, Peter tells us that all of these things are true. The call for us to worship God in all areas of our lives is true, even in the midst of the hard times of life. This isn't just for when life is growing great, but it's no matter what, we are called to worship him. God is at work building us into a temple no matter what. See, the beautiful thing about the church is there are always going to be some people in the church who are uh, experiencing the highest highs of life with the joys of life. And there are some people who are experiencing the lowest lows and the valleys of life. And God calls us to walk together. God calls us to be built into a spiritual temple for him together. As we serve one another, as we love one another, and as we worship God. In fact, worship not only is important, it's worship, I think, that helps us hold on in the midst of these things. See what it says in verse 4. Verse 4, it tells us that Jesus himself, called the, the living stone, was rejected by people while he was on the face of this earth, but he was chosen and precious in God's eyes. Jesus, when he walked the earth, was the most popular person in Israel during his day. And Jesus, when he walked the earth, was the most hated man in Israel during his day. And that hatred that he experienced led to his eventual crucifixion and death. And what Peter is saying here is he's telling us that if Jesus experienced it, if Jesus suffered, then we should expect it too. My favorite historical figure probably from the 17 and 1800s is this guy named William Wilberforce. How many of you have heard of William Wilberforce before? Okay. For those of you who don't know who he is, uh, he was a British MP, which is a member of parliament uh, at the late 1700s, early 1800s, and uh, it was a devout Christian. And he is actually... um, responsible for a lot of moral changes that took place in the British Empire while he was a part of Parliament for decades. And this culminated when he eventually uh, was able to abolish the slave trade in, uh, in the British Empire. And that's probably his crowning achievement. But that wasn't the most important thing that he did, in my opinion. 
See, William Wilberforce is probably that one guy that had the biggest impact on Western society that many of us don't know anything about. Most important thing he did wasn't just abolishing the slave trade. Most important thing he did was changing the mindset of ways people thought about the slave trade. Before Wilberforce came uh, into Parliament, no one uh, disagreed with the slave trade. Everyone thought that it was good. By the time he left Parliament, no one could argue convincingly for the morality of the slave trade. He was able to shift the entire uh, conscience of the Western world in just a few decades. In the last couple hundred years, actually, in the 1800s and 1900s, I think that we have been living in the wake of someone like William Wilberforce, where he had awoken this conscience in our society to follow uh, the Christian principles that he laid out in Scripture. But over the past few decades, we've seen a little bit of a shift away from that. In the last couple decades, we've seen that there are people that are no longer accepting Christian principles as the way, as the best way to do it, um, as the way that God uh, wants us to live. And they actually, as I mentioned earlier, uh, beginning to paint Christians as intolerant, as bigoted, um, as um, basically the problem with the world rather than with the solution. Before Wilberforce in England, it was a Christian nation, so-called, and yet anyone who was an evangelical who actually cared about their faith was looked down upon, was uh, mistreated, and was uh, considered to be an outcast in society. After him, Christian principles reign supreme. I think the 21st century is becoming a lot like 18th 18th century England before Wilberforce came in. We're seeing an increase in the number of people who reject Christianity as not only true, but just good for us. We see an increase in the number of people who look at Christians as what's wrong with the world. And what Peter is telling us in this passage is that we shouldn't be surprised by that. He gives us a passage from uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You should not be surprised at the things that are happening in our society. We have been blessed by God to live in uh, basically two centuries of unprecedented Christian influence here in the United States. It's been an incredible blessing from God, and now God is beginning to take that gift away from us. We're beginning to experience life as what most Christians throughout church history have experienced. And Peter is saying, don't be surprised. If Jesus himself was rejected, don't be surprised when you are either. Of course, Peter isn't just talking about cultural shifts. He's talking also about the hard things in our lives that we experience. When we experience unemployment, it tells us to hold on to Jesus. When we experience mental illness, hold on to Jesus. When we see our family members uh, being lost to illness and death, hold on to Jesus. In the midst of all of these things, hold on to him. Cling to him because he himself suffered. And he is worth clinging on to. Let's continue looking at 1 Peter, starting in verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. 
They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Here in these verses, we see the second reason why we should cling on to Jesus in the midst of the hard times. It's because he is worthy of trust. He is worthy of trust in the midst of the difficulties of life. In order for Peter to prove his point that he just made earlier about God building us into a temple and how Jesus was rejected, and we should expect it too, he quotes the Old Testament. He refers back to this Old Testament passages about how God is calling each of us to respond to the gospel. Every one of us has to respond to the gospel. We can respond really in two ways. And when he quotes these passages, he's laying out the two different ways that we can respond to the gospel. The first way that we can respond is to trust in him. We can trust in Jesus when we respond to the gospel. To do this, he quotes a passage from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28 is not a fun passage to read. Uh, It's filled with verse after verse of God condemning and judging and casting out judgment upon the people of Israel for the ways that they were immoral, the ways they sought after other gods, and the ways that they had rejected him. And yet in the midst of all of these uh, words of judgment, there's this ray of hope that comes in 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 chapter 28. And that's what Peter quotes here. It tells us, and God tells the people of Israel's day, and Peter is telling his audience that when God, or when those who trust in God, they will not be put to shame. Those who trust in God will never be put to shame. They will never go unrewarded. It might not seem like it right now. It might be seeming like you yourself are experiencing shame for the Christian calling that God has on your life. For the high school student who isn't able to fit in because they are different with their faith. God says you will not be put to shame and you will not go unrewarded. For those of us who are experiencing the cultural pressure to try to fit in and just leave behind all of this Christianity stuff, God is saying, if you trust in me, you will not be put to shame and I will help you to endure. For those who are just experiencing darkness right now, feel like giving up, God is saying, do not give up. Trust in me, hold on to me, and you will not be put to shame. See, in the grand scheme of things, if you look at things from God's eyes, there is no such thing as being put to shame if we trust in him. It might feel different right now, but just as Jesus was chosen and precious in God's eyes, even though he was rejected by the world, we also are chosen and precious in God's eyes if we trust in him. Peter tells us a little bit about what it means to trust in him and what the result of that is in verse 7. In verse 7, the way I read it, my translation is ESV, and it said, "The, the honor is for those who believe. The honor is for you who believe. And the NIV has something a little bit different than that. And I don't think the NIV is very accurate here. It uh, could do a little better job with this passage. Because the NIV translates it something as, uh, the cornerstone is precious to you who believe. It says something along those lines. And the NIV assumes, or is taking this passage to say that God is considered good and precious if you believe in him. But what we see a couple verses later is uh, Peter is telling us that God is precious no matter what. No matter what we think of God, he is precious. This honor he's referring to is the honor that we experience if we place our faith in him and if we place our trust in him. And what is that honor? That honor is vindication. And one day we will stand before God and we will be proved right in front of our enemies for those who slandered and treated us poorly. That one day there will be justice and we will see all things made right in this world 
And we experience so much injustice today. And this honor is that we will not be put to shame if we trust in God. So that's the first option, to place our trust in him. The second option is what Peter says in the uh, last two passages that he quotes from, uh, from Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8. He tells us that the other option is to reject God. Everyone on the face of the planet will fit into these two categories. They're either, either going to accept Jesus and trust in him, or they're going to reject him. There's no middle ground. It's one of those two options. But whether we trust in him or whether we reject him, honestly, it doesn't change who God is. It doesn't change who Jesus is. He's still considered to be precious in God's eyes. He's still considered to be the cornerstone whether we like it or not. It doesn't matter if we like it or not, frankly. Uh, I always think it's funny, and I, I have to laugh when people will say, I can't believe in a God who blank. And they'll share the certain thing that they can't believe in a God who does that certain thing. And I always think that that's funny because it doesn't matter if you can believe in it or not. If Scripture says it, then that's what God is like. It might be offensive to us. We may not like it. But Jesus was offensive. God's word is offensive. And when we say, I can't believe in a God who blank, what we're saying is that I know more than God does. I'm in a position of power over God, and I can choose what he is like and what he's not like. But that's not the way the things work. We submit ourselves to him. We submit ourselves to his revealed word. The end of verse 8 tells us a little bit about how people reject him and how this comes about. You see, the greatest way that people leave Christianity today, it isn't through scientific arguments. It isn't through philosophical arguments against the existence of God. It's not through someone experiencing some terrible hurt in their past and just saying, I can't do this anymore and leaving behind God. That's, those lead to some people rejecting Christianity, but that's not the main reason why people leave the church the main reason people leave the church is because they love sin. They don't like what Jesus has to say, and so they just decide to ignore it. They decide to leave it behind. They might come up with another reason and say, well, I don't believe that, you know, the belief in God is rational. But what they're really saying nine times out of ten is, well, I just didn't really like what he had to say. I didn't really like what he was telling me to do. That's what Peter is saying here when he talks about disobedience to God's word. The way most people reject Jesus is because of a disobedience to God's word. It's based more on morality, more on what God's word has to say than it is on anything else. So each and every one of us is faced with a decision. How will we respond? How are we going to respond to this calling that God has given to us? This choice that God has given to us. If Jesus uh, is someone that we trust, then Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the one that we build all of our life upon. Or is Jesus going to be someone that we reject? Is Jesus going to be someone that is like a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense that is right there in the middle of our path and we just keep tripping over him? How are we going to respond? We only have two options. What Peter is saying here as he quotes Isaiah and, and the book of Psalms, he's telling us that God is worthy of trust. God is worthy of honor and respect. And if we place our trust in him, we will never be put to shame. So cling to him. Let's continue looking at the last two verses here, and starting in verse 9. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The third reason that Peter gives us for why we can cling to Jesus in the midst of our hardships is because we're a part of his kingdom. We are a part of his kingdom. If you notice all of these different things that Peter refers to us as, uh, the chosen race, a, a holy priest, a royal priest of a holy nation, all of these different things are actually found in the Old Testament. They are either direct quotes or they are references back to things that are used in the Old Testament. And what Peter is doing here is he's saying that we, the church, is the new Israel. We, the church, is the new Israel. That can mean different things. Uh, we can talk about what it actually means for the, uh, you know, the nation of Israel today. But one thing is clear, is that God's people are now the church. Church has all of the privileges and the responsibilities of being his people. Let's take a look at all of these different uh, phrases that are used to describe us and see what exactly Peter is getting at. First, he calls us the chosen race. Chosen race is used a lot to refer to Abraham, how Abraham was chosen by God out of all of the nations to follow him, to be set apart from all of the nations. In the same way, God has chosen us, the church, out of all of the nations to follow him and to serve him in the midst of the lives that we are living. The New Testament tells us that those who are the children of Abraham, the true children of Abraham, are those who have faith in Jesus. Because we have been chosen by God, to follow him. Ethnic distinctions no longer matter. Racial distinctions no longer matter. We are all, as a part of the church, a part of what God is doing in the world, a part of his new creation through the cross of Jesus. Second, he calls us a royal priesthood. Royal, when he's using it right here, really refers to the fact that we belong to the king. We belong to Jesus as his priests. We are set apart for service to God himself. We already talked a little bit about the concept of priesthood, about how we are all called to offer worship to God in the midst of our lives. We are called to worship God, and we are set apart as his priests. We are royal priests. Third thing he says, we are a holy nation. If you remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, holy really just means to be set apart. God has called us to live set-apart lives. And God chose Israel from the very beginning to be, uh, and he plants Israel right in the middle of all of the nations and says, all right, Israel, I want you to be a shining light so that way you can influence all of the nations that are around you. You're going to be my plan to reach those who are around you. And what he says with the church is the same thing, that you are now my plan to reach those who are around you because you are a set-apart nation. Sometime this afternoon or this week, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is Crosswinds a set-apart nation? When people look at our church in Spencer and in Spirit Lake, do they notice that we are different? Do they notice that we are set apart and used by God to reach the people who are around us? I'm going to be honest, I really didn't know if I wanted to hear the answer to that question. Because I, I figured if I heard the answer to that question, it would cost a lot of me. And I'm still wrestling through what it means for us to be a set-apart nation. 
for all of the churches that worship God in this community to be a set-apart nation for him, to reach those who are around us? I want you to ask yourself that question. Are we set apart? Are we being used by God to reach those who are around us? The fourth thing he says is we call, he calls us a people of his own possession. This means a couple different things. First, in the, in the old times, in ancient times, especially the first century, uh, the way things worked in the Roman household is the father was considered to be the master of the household. And as the master of the household, he owned every single thing that was a part of this household, including the other people. And so what Peter is saying here is that we are God's adopted children, and so now we belong to him. We are his. The reason why we reach those who are around us, the reason why we are set apart for that purpose is because we belong to him. Another thing that he's getting at here is talking a little bit about redemption. See, redemption is a way of really just buying something back. Buying something out of slavery to free it from that slavery. And when Jesus died on the cross for us, he bought us back. He freed us from slavery, and now we belong to God. Paul tells us that we are no longer slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness. We belong to God, and because of that, we follow him. If you've ever asked the question, why did God choose me? This concept of election that Peter brings up a little in here about God choosing us can be a sticky conversation to have. But if you ever wonder, why did God choose me? You're never going to find the answer by looking at yourself. You're never going to be able to identify some sort of characteristic that, oh, I'm this way, that's why God chose me. Or I did this, that's why God chose me. You're never going to find something like that. Scripture doesn't tell us why God chooses us to follow him. It's just a part of God's unknowable plan. But what Scripture does tell us, and this is far more important, Scripture tells us why, uh, the purpose of why God has chosen us. And that's what Peter gets at here at the end of verse 9 by telling us that we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The reason why God has chosen to save us, the reason why we are part of God's family, and this is ultimately the reason of the church, is to tell others about God's goodness. This isn't exactly an evangelistic passage telling us that we should go share our faith with those who are outside of the the church, but it kind of is at the same time. We're supposed to share what God is doing in our lives with those who are around us. It can be Christians, it can be non-Christians. We're supposed to share and tell others about the goodness of God in our lives. If you've ever struggled sharing your faith with others, I encourage you to stop trying to tell people uh, all of the different reasons why God exists and just tell them what God is doing in your life, how God is at work in your life. I think that this is one of the greatest ways to inspire worship in people. It's by saying, you know, this is what God is doing. It builds us up and us, encourages us to see how God is working. So ask yourself, how did God bring me out of darkness and into marvelous light? What was that great darkness that I once lived in that God has now brought me out of? For me, it was a great heavy darkness of trying to constantly seek the approval of everyone who was around me. Uh, Great heavy darkness, um, great weight on my shoulders to always try to please those who are around me. And yet, when God brought me out of the darkness and into the marvelous light, it's like the chains that had bound me 
have been loosed. Each and every one of us, no matter what age, no matter what our background, was once dwelling in darkness, no matter how great or how small. What is the darkness that God saved you from? What is the light that you now live in as his people? Again, you might be asking, how does this have to do with suffering? Or what does this have to do with suffering? The answer is everything. See, who we are in God's eyes leads to worship. Who we are in God's eyes leads to telling other people about him. Who we are in God's eyes also leads to a confidence in him. That he's never going to forsake us. He's never going to leave us. That he looks at us is going to walk with us in the midst of the difficulties of our lives. His promises are so sure that they will never fail. And that's the ultimate reason why we can cling to God in the midst of our hardships. Because we have never, never will be put to shame if we trust in him. This is what Peter is doing when he quotes Isaiah 28 here. I don't typically bring out the Greek uh, when, I, when I speak on Sunday mornings, but I, I think it's really important for us here. This passage from Isaiah chapter 28, that last phrase here where it says, uh, the one who trusts in him will not be put to shame. In Greek, this is a double negative. Now in English, we all know a double negative cancels each other out and it's uh, you know, a positive, which is kind of crazy if you ask me, but that's neither here nor there. In Greek, a double negative is the strongest form of a negative that you can ever have. Peter and Isaiah and God, ultimately, in this passage, is not just saying, if you trust in me, you're not going to be put to shame. He's saying, if you trust in me, you will never be put to shame. There's nothing on the face of this planet. There's no sin that you can commit. There's no thing that people can do to you. There's nothing uh, in heaven. There's no spiritual attack that you can experience. There is no temptation from the world that you will undergo that will take me or take you away from me if you have your trust in me. For those who trust in me, who cling to me, you will never be put to shame. So are we clinging to him? Are we trusting in him? If you're not, I encourage you to do so. And if you are clinging to him and trusting in him, this leads to worship. It leads to worship with our entire lives. It leads to worship by telling others about this good news that he has for us and what God has done in our lives. It leads to changed hearts and changed lives. I want to close with verse 10. Verse 10 is uh, one of the most beautiful verses uh, I've read recently and just tells us about this great contrast between the darkness we once were in and the, now the light that we are in. When we were once orphans, now God has made us his children. It's because he loved us and chose to do it. It's not like we chose to show ourselves mercy, but God decided to show us mercy. And Peter says this, we who were once not a people are now not only a people, we are now God's people. And we who once had not received mercy have now been shown mercy. That mercy leads us to trust in him in the midst of darkness, in the midst of our hard times of life. And it's confident that we will never be put to shame. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true and that it speaks life and also conviction to us. And God, right now, I pray that as we are faced with the decision to trust in you or to not trust in you, I pray that we would make the right choice, that we would choose to follow you and submit ourselves to you. And God, I pray that from that place, with you being the cornerstone of our lives, the foundation for everything that we do, I ask that from that place, God, we would worship you with our entire lives. And everything that we do and say and think, it would be an act of worship to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.